I hear you are singing a song of the past. I see no tears. I know that you know it may be the last for many years. You'd gamble or give anything to be in with the better half. But how many friends must I have to begin with to make you laugh? Greetings, listeners, if any, and welcome to DM Dad, the podcast about running D&D and other RPGs for kids. A great way to spend time with your family now that your friends are too old and have all moved away. So, hello, listeners. Um, It's uh, just after lunch on Tuesday, the day before I run my Swords and Wizardry white box game for... uh, for a group of strangers that I've never met before. Well, that's the definition of strangers. Way to go, Rob. Um, I also just got an email from uh, Bands in Town informing me that Steely Dan have announced a new show. Um, I seem to recall that Walter Becker is dead, so I don't see how that's going to happen. I guess they'll just have to do it without him. Um Really, though, you should just then call it Donald Fagan because that's basically Steely Dan is those two guys and one of them's dead. So, um, But I'm not here to talk about Steely Dan as much as I would love to. Um, I've got a lot of, uh, a, a lot of phone-ins and uh, I didn't address any of them in my previous episode, so I would like to go ahead and do that now. And so going into chronological order, or the order I received them, we're going to start with Larry Hamilton. Hey, Robert, this is Larry with Follow Me and Die. Uh, Just want to comment on running your first game for Strangers. That's basically the same scenario as running your first convention game. Uh, I, too, had a lot of stress over that, and I way over-prepared a module, uh, Village of Homlet. And it was a a good experience. Uh, I got over my nervousness and I quickly figured out that I would be better off preparing my own stuff because I spent so much time getting ready for that that it was less time to just make up my own adventure that doesn't take as much detail. Um, So I think you're right to go with a one-page adventure that's simple to the point and easy to get through any uh, strange things that happen. Good luck. So, yeah, that was... uh, Larry sent me that message when I first mentioned a couple episodes ago that I was going to do this thing. Um, So thanks for that word of encouragement. And, I mean, indeed, like, I... Despite your advice, I am over-preparing. And also despite the the stripped-down nature of the adventure I'm doing... Um, I, I feel like as it grows up, as it goes on, it's, it's almost like a nervous habit. Like I keep thinking, well, maybe I'll roll up some NPCs, you know, maybe I'll, uh, you know, I'll name the tavern. Um, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, 
The only thing I haven't done is I haven't like generated a list of potential hirelings in case they take hirelings. Although if if, if there's going to be like six or seven of them, they may not need hirelings. I feel like if they each brought like a hireling, there's 12 people going. It's a, it's a tower. It's a small confined space. We don't, they don't need hirelings on this one. Although in general, I do encourage people hiring some, um, some help, especially at low levels. But yeah, what I'm doing right this minute actually is I bought some little, um, A5, uh, graph paper and like dotted kind of bullet journal style paper. And I'm stapling them into little booklets along with a blank character sheet, the uh, Bloat Games OSR Deluxe character sheet. Printed out eight copies of them. So I'm going to make eight little journals. Each of them with space for them to take notes and space for them to graph. And I'm going to encourage one of them to map, at least one of them. Uh, They can all map if they want to and compare notes. But um, I felt that would be a nice little welcoming thing. Um, Somebody else was talking about... I think it was even Chuck Thorne this morning or something talking about going to uh, a game and the DM had uh, um, handed out little notebooks and stuff like customized notebooks for them to to take some notes on and stuff. And I just thought I could probably do that. So I went down to uh, Office Depot and, you know, just got some some stuff. I also got a pack of pencils with erasers on them and stuff like that. Although, to be honest, I'm doing this to be nice and welcoming, but really, if you shouldn't show up to a game of D&D without a pencil. Um, anyways, but yeah. Um, I feel like yesterday I didn't talk as much about the adventure as I could have. And for a long time, I've been wanting to do kind of an episode about these one-page adventures. Because of how they work. Um, They really, really appeal to me. Um, I feel like when I first, when I first got the, this one tower of skulls and first started downloading these and you can get some of them off drive through RPG and stuff. it, It was, it was like somebody had finally written an adventure the way I wanted them to, or the way that I needed them to. Cause I don't like a lot of lore. Um, I don't like to have to read a lot of text before I run the game. One of the things I hate the most is you get this really thick hardcover book and you really want to run the adventure. You know the general story. And the first thing it says, read this entire thing before you attempt to run the adventure. And it is full of backstory and weird details and stuff like that. And... You know, frankly, I'm the kind of DM who I'm going to make that stuff up as I go anyway or make up my own version of it. So I don't actually need to read yours. It's no like it's not like I'm saying your lore is bad. It's probably great, but it's yours. It's not mine. And I'm the kind of person who I have a lot of ideas about lore and background and motivations and things like that. Um what I don't have, I don't have maps. I'm terrible at mapping. I don't I, I do have some ideas for my own homebrew adventures, but I don't have a million ideas for like for an a whole adventure. I don't have I do not have bespoke monster ideas. I occasionally come up with a bespoke monster idea, but I'm not one of these people who gets a, an idea like that would be a great idea for a monster and I feel comfortable statting it out and using it. That's not how my mind works. 
So I need a concept for the adventure. I need a kind of a, a concept for the setting. What what is this what is this adventure site about? What makes it unique and different? I, you know, I'm happy to have bespoke magic items. I don't come up with those on my own very well. I'm happy to have monster suggestions, especially unique monsters, adventure hooks, you know, but I I do not need to know the name of the country or its history. I don't need a timeline of events. That's the kind of stuff I can come up with on my own on the fly if I need to. I am happy to improv that at the table. Um, So to me, a lot of lore... It feels like a lot of reading that isn't necessarily going to be useful that stops me getting to the information that is useful. And these one-page adventures, it's just useful information. It's stripped down to the stuff that I need to run this game. It's like, I guess I have like the kind of dragnet approach, like just the facts, ma'am, you know? So like what we've got here, and, and they all kind of follow the same format as we have a setting, and it's like a couple of sentences, descriptions of the setting. In this case, it's a tower in the middle of a river, and it can only be accessed by boat. There used to be a bridge, but has been destroyed for many years. The tower goes down into the river rather than up. It should be four to seven levels deep. That's it. That's all. That, that's, that's the whole setting. You can work from there. You know, anything that isn't included in that description, you make up yourself, and I am more than happy to make that stuff up. So that's perfect. There's a little bit of background information. It tells you that there's a cult that worships um, an evil sea monster called Rultzak. It describes Rultzak and uh, there's stats for him later. You know, they there's a, basically there's details like, you know, Rultzak feeds on heads and then um, his tentacles are made of skulls, so every time he eats a head, he gets bigger and longer. They sacrifice cult members to Rultzak. There's some suggested features of the Tower of Skulls. So there's the suggested feature of the rivermen chanting, come lie with us deep in the river. And what I did with that was I turned that into a trick room where people coming up to the room hear chanting from inside, and they will expect to meet cultists on the other side and there aren't any cultists however further on once they're in that room the the chanting ceases but now it seems to come from another door off that same chamber and that's leading them to a trapped um a trapped chest where it, it traps them with paralysis gas and if they all fail their saves what will happen is they'll be captured by the cult and the, and so the way the last encounter will the last encounter will run very differently because it'll be basically of them trying to escape from the cult before they summon Rultzak. There's a room that's barred shut and the other side is completely flooded via hole in the tower. I kind of ran with that. I uh I actually have two separate areas that are trapped that way. And uh, there, there'll be plenty of clues for them to understand that they shouldn't open that door. One of which is simply that the tower is going into the river. They can expect that if there was a window or something ever in the tower before, that water will flow freely in, and they can expect at least some of the rooms to be completely flooded with water. Um, writing on an idol. So the idol I decided is a statue of Rultzak. I thought that would be a good clue for them to know what they're dealing with. If, 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 if there's a possibility that Rultzak will never be summoned if they actually can defeat the cultists before they're able to summon Rultzak. But this way they at least get a look at it. 
So um, they'll be writing on the walls in a lot of places, and and there'll be the two things. The writing on the idol is, in the end, we return to the water. And the chanting has come lie with us deep in the river, and the cults will have scribbled those sentences on the walls at various places, along with, I, like, I rolled up a random symbol of Rultzak that they'll see. But only one of those things is written on the idol. I'm actually changing it so that the idol will also say, come lie with us deep in the river. And basically, if they say the response, if, they, if one of them then says, in the end, we return to the water, a door in the room will open automatically. And that's the only way to open that door. And what's in that door? Well, there's a library with information that will be useful to them, but not essential. So if they never actually get that door open, it doesn't matter. Um, the other thing I thought I would do with this idol is, so it's a statue of Rultzak, so they can see the tentacles made out of skulls. However, it's not going to be made out of literal skulls. This isn't the real monster. So it's going to be carved out of various types of rock. And I thought that there would be a pile of skull-shaped rocks that they can actually stick on to the tentacles. Rultzak has six tentacles. That's specified in the adventure. I'm going to put five skull rocks in there, so they cannot put one on each. The The sixth one is in that room. And if they put on that, if they put that uh, that sixth one on a tentacle, then in the beak-like mouth of Rultzak, a potion will appear, a, a vial of a potion, and that will actually be a potion of healing. And that, first of all, potion of healing is always useful, especially at first level when you don't have a cleric who can cast cure cure light wounds. But it also suggests what happens when Rultzak eats skulls is he heals himself. So hopefully that will, you know kind of suggest that it would be a, a way for them to get some information like whatever you do, don't let Rultzak eat ahead because he will actually heal. He will heal himself. A trap on the steps of the spiral staircase. Um, it doesn't say what kind of trap I chose that this cultist had actually doused one of the steps with like oil of slipperiness. Um, so there'll be some clues about that, especially if they're using a torch and looking carefully at the steps. And one of the ways they're going to get them to start looking at the steps is when they open the trap door, water will flood down the stairs and the stairs will be slippery. So hopefully they, sh- they should be being careful. And this worked when I ran it for my daughter as she was very careful about the steps. And she, she be, there, her party has a lot of elves. So she was trying to rely on dark vision. And I, I reminded her that with dark vision, you can't see in total darkness as if it were daylight. You can, you're just not totally blind, but you will miss the kind of details that could point to traps and secret doors. And for instance, I won't give you your two and six chance of noticing a secret door just by walking past it. So she decided to light up a torch. And then you could use the flickering light of the torch to, cl- to clue them in that they might want to um, avoid a certain step. And she freaked out about that step quite a bit. And, you know, it took her a long time to realize that she could just step over it. And even when she did, she, we, we, I did marching order and she, uh, she was really nervous. Every time I described somebody stepping over the step, she was not sure that's just merely stepping over. It would actually work. She did poke it with a 10 foot pole. And I described that once the pole hit it, it seemed to slip off right away as if it couldn't get any traction on that step because it's oil of slipperiness. Um, 
the way that I, I run traps or the way that I'm trying to run traps now is actually kind of inspired by Courtney Campbell, um, who does like the hack and slash blog and has been doing the mega dungeon mag magazine. And he wrote some things about information, about giving information to players and how you don't deny them re a reasonable amount of information just because you know it will tip them off to your pet trap or your pet encounter. Because the whole point is that they need to make intelligent decisions and they can't make intelligent decisions without information. Information is effectively the most valuable commodity in the game. And if they're asking questions about the right thing and interacting with it in the right way, then they deserve a shot of all the information that they could reasonably ascertain with their five senses in order to make that decision. And it, it really turned me around. He said, he, he also said, don't play gotcha with traps. And that really started me thinking about what, what should a trap really do? And I've decided that based on that logic, the way I want traps to work in my game is I want them to be an exercise in thinking about how to get around the trap, not an excuse to kill them, you know? It, so it doesn't bother me any longer if the trap doesn't go off. What the point of the trap is, is to stop them and make them think about what to do. And this is a very simple trap. All you have to do is step over it. But it's also the first adventure I'm running for this group. Possibly the only adventure I run for this group. But in any case, the first level one party. We'll do more complex traps later where I have to describe a lot of things. Where they have to look at all the parts and try to figure out how it works and what they would do to get around it or, or to stop it working. But that's, how I, that's what I want the purpose of traps to be going forward is an exercise in creative thinking, not tricking you into dying. A human body missing a head. Now, I mean, that's probably just meant to be dungeon dressing, but I turned that into an encounter. And like I said in the last episode, it was because by the time I placed that, it, it was quite a ways from where I put the trap and there wasn't a lot of other combat. And I felt it was time for some more drama by the time they reached that room. Because it's a tower, it does have basically one path, one one direction of travel. Um, I probably could try harder to uh, jacquet it, as, as the saying goes, and put more alternative paths and stuff. Maybe put like a secret elevator or something like that, or a secret chute or something. But again, I'm trying to run this quickly. So I think... A one direction of travel is fine for this introductory this introductory adventure. Therefore, when they encounter the headless body, it'll have been a long time since they've had to really or since they've been in any real danger. So that's why I turned it into an encounter. Also, I love undead, and I will always find a way to put undead if I can in. They're my favorite type of monster. It's just, I guess it's the horror fan in me. Another thing is that because it is, because a headless body attacking you is clearly undead, gives the cleric, if they do have a cleric, gives the cleric a chance to turn undead. So there's more than one way to deal with that encounter. You could try to kill the headless thing or re-kill it, or you could just turn it. And it's likely enough, I'll have it, I'll have it, I'll do it as a zombie, basically. That'll be the, uh. It'll be classed as a zombie um, for the purposes of turning. The other thing I did was I added the frog, the giant frog encounters on the roof of the tower. Um, I do that because, first of all, there's something about me. I love giant frogs. 
I don't know why. I don't know what it is about them. It's one of my favorite things, along with Undead. It's one of my favorite types of monster. Whenever there's water in an adventure, I start thinking, could this be a place for giant frogs? And also, I kind of I, I, I wanted there to be that classic guardian of the entrance. Like, you found where the dungeon starts, but before you can actually go in it, there's something that you have to deal with. And really, the way that frog encounter can go, if you do manage to get the door, if you manage to get the door open in a one then the frogs won't attack at all. If you manage to get the door open at any time during the resulting combat and get down the stairs, the frogs will not pursue you into the dungeon. So you don't even need to necessarily fight all the frogs. However, one of the frogs is going to be about twice the size of the other ones and big enough to swallow a halfling. And if they do have a halfling, they probably won't because I think a lot of people don't like playing a halfling in this rule set where you have to be a fighter or thief. And you have to be capped at level four. But if they do, the big frog is going to try to swallow that halfling and then swim away. And then they'll have to make a choice about whether to pursue him or just roll up a new character. It'll be interesting to see what the moral choice is if that happens. But it might not. Um, there's, there's a section for adventure hooks. There's a, a description of the adventure inspiration. And then this basically all fits on a, a four sheet of paper. It's done in landscape in two columns. Then there's basically stats for the monsters, for the cult members who are basically like a, a, a two hit die fighter. They have a, a AC seven or 12, um, a weapon attack, um, and a movement rate of 12. There's the cult mystic who has some cleric spells and Rultzak itself, which is a really big, bad monster, really, really tough. And then a special item, the black skull, which basically if you gaze into it, it will heal all of your, it will heal you completely. And it specifically says damage and illnesses. So if you got any kind of disease or curse, well, maybe not curses, but diseases, surely, you would be cured. However, you lose a year from your life and the skull begins to graft skin and muscles. That kind of reminds me of, have you guys ever seen that movie, uh, Blood on Satan's Claw? Ugh, creepy. Um, if you do this long enough, the skull of a dead evil god will completely regenerate. Now, that doesn't sound like Rultzak. Like another dead evil god will regenerate. I love, though, this idea. There's a positive thing they get. They get healed, but they do have to sacrifice a year of their life. And long-term, something really bad will happen. I love these mixed magic items where they have to weigh the good and the bad. Anyways, as you can see, there's not a lot of information there. and There's a lot of what I call white space where you can just fill it in. So, for instance, the history of the tower how it got to where it is. These are things that I kind of made up myself. And I rolled a lot of details on some random tables, especially some stuff from from um, from Maze Rats, actually. Maze Rats has a lot of really great random tables that you could uh, you could roll on, even if you're not playing Maze Rats. And the Tomb of, or Tome of Adventure Design by Matt Finch. And I spent a lot of time recently doing that. And I think... I'm probably I'm probably coming up with too much or probably putting up too many background details in there and probably a lot of this isn't going to come up. But I find that as it grows 
closer, I'm getting more and more nervous. So despite Larry's excellent advice, I am over-preparing. Um, although at least a lot of this stuff, I rolled it up randomly or made it up myself and it will be easier for me to remember. Because one thing, if you listen to Josh Beckelheimer's um podcast where he talks about why he does the one page adventures in the first place he was talking about you know the kind of information overload you get like from the really big thick hardcover adventure modules and how that can even you know trigger anxiety in terms of i need to get all these details right and i had a bit of that even running curse of strahd um i ran uh the encounter in Barovia, where they go into the church and they deal with the uh, priest's son, who's a vampire spawn. After I ran that encounter, after the session was over, I was just kind of reading through, um, through the section again. And I realized that I hadn't played the priest quite the way he's described in the module. I hadn't played him quite to... Chris Perkins's design intentions. And at first I felt, oh my God, I got it wrong. And I felt really anxious. Later I calmed myself down and, and I said, well, you know, it made the way I ran that encounter and the way I ran that NPC made sense at the time. Everybody bought it. Everybody had a good time. It got the party where they needed to go. They earned it. I didn't give it away. You know, they, they, uh, they came up with a really good solution and they interacted with him well. So it doesn't actually matter if Chris Perkins would have ran that encounter differently or if he had different intentions for that NPC. The point is it worked for my game at my table. But there is always that possibility of that kind of anxiety when you're doing somebody else's material. And if you contrast that with the homebrew adventure that I ran when I first started playing D&D with my daughter... I hardly wrote anything down at all, just a few notes and everything else I ad-libbed or I just remembered what I wanted to happen. And I never felt anxious about that because I had complete ownership over the details. So for me, at least, I find that it's easier to run the game when you are supplying most of the details. And that's maybe another reason that I like my own lore. It's not just that, well, I have my own particular tastes, my own particular desires or, or style of lore. And that's, I mean, that's certainly true as well. But I think another, another reason why I just would rather do my own lore is that I have complete ownership of those details and I feel much more comfortable and confident because it's my stuff. I know how it's meant to work. I know what I, I know what I was thinking when I decided this this encounter was going to play this way. It's always easier to remember your own stuff. And since it is your own stuff, if you end up changing it on the fly, oh well, it was your stuff to begin with. And I don't like I guess when they have a really long complex adventure and you do change something, you do have to think about how is this going to change, what repercussions is this going to have down the line. But when I when I do have to improv new details or change something, and it is my own adventure, I know what the effects are going to be because I know the whole adventure since I I wrote it. You know, um, I don't have to worry about oh, is this going to not make sense now when you get further down the road, which is definitely a possibility when you're running a really long. Um, adventure and it's full of details and you know 
complex interactions and things. So, hello, Robert. Incoming message from Spike Pit. Man, uh, what an episode. Just listen to your latest and it's an embarrassment of riches. I don't know where to start. I agree with virtually everything you're saying. And, um, well, I can't, I'm I'm not going to try and cover it all. Um, But one thing you did say in particular, the business of details in encounters. You was talking about Larry's um, new project on drive-thru. I totally agree. I love those little details that you can put into encounters. You don't need a big, massive story, um, and don't need, don't want or need all that fiddly rolling. Let's, let's just describe a thing, and then let the, let the characters describe how they're tackling it. I th- I think that makes for some of my most enjoyable sessions. So, agree, agree. Also, uh, me again. Almost forgot. Happy birthday, mate. Hope you had a good one. Enjoyed your trip to Stockholm. I'm off to Oslo, funnily enough, in uh, in a couple of months. Well, just after Christmas. But also, Nave. I picked that up. I've got high hopes. I've read through it. I think it looks really good. Can't wait to get it to the table. It's got the type of... I don't know if exactly unique is is the, the way to describe it, but in... True Ben Milton fashion is he's just brought some solid thinking into the the design of the game. I think I think you'll like it, and definitely yay to Maze Rats and the random tables. You, you know the score that you use them in everything. So so handy, and the creating monsters and things you can do with just such a light rule system. I think it's genius. Anyway, later. All the best. So thanks for that, Colin. Um, and yet, especially thanks for the uh, birthday wishes. Um, it's funny you should mention going to Oslo because uh, that was like that's that's my other um, place in Scandinavia I'd really like to visit. Like basically, I've always wanted to go to Sweden, Norway, and Iceland. And to be honest, the Faroe Islands. I know that sounds weird. Um, I'm just fascinated by the Faroe Islands. They're so remote, and yet they totally exist. Um, the fact that people would would go to this island out in the middle of nowhere that's nearly impossible to get to and then just live there for the rest of their lives, you know, and uh, and they're still going strong, you know, hundreds of years later. Um, also, their national holiday, which is the feast day of their patron saint, is my wife's birthday. So, um, and uh, I don't know, I just I've always wanted to go there. Unfortunately, my wife doesn't want to go there, so I probably will never get the opportunity to go there. And I mean, I guess, frankly, what would I do? You know, what what do you do as a tourist in the Faroe Islands? I don't know. You know, Um, Faroe means it means the island of sheep. For is a sheep in the North Germanic languages. Um, So presumably they have a lot of sheep there. Um, I guess you could look at sheep and... um, I don't know, waves crashing against the rocky shores, I guess. Um, strangely, I do not have any burning desire to go to Denmark. Maybe it's because it's the only one that touches mainland Europe. I feel like it's the least exotic. I have no idea. But, I, I you know, 
it, my wife said, we're going to Stockholm for your birthday. And it's like, woohoo. If she had said, we're going to Oslo, I would have been like, woohoo, Reykjavik, woohoo. If it had been Copenhagen, I would have been like, oh, yeah, thanks. You know, no offense to Danish people. I'm sure Denmark is a beautiful country and I'm sure Copenhagen is a beautiful city. But I don't know, something about it. I feel like it's, I don't know. It's not the one that I really want to see. You know, Stockholm has all those islands. It's basically this huge archipelago of about 30,000 little islands. Um, you know, Norway has all those fjords that are like so distinctive. You know, Iceland has that uh, strange clash of, you know, vol being volcanic and being also really cold. And um, But yeah, I don't know. Copenhagen is apparently, I guess kind of flat i don't know anyways um spike pit isn't the only one to have uh phoned in check this out hi robert arfed here um just calling in to firstly wish you a happy birthday and say how much i've been enjoying your podcasts uh caught up with all the episodes now uh, just a few comments on some of the previous podcasts. Really like the idea of the kids on bikes uh, game that you talked about. Um, so looking forward to hearing about hobbits on ponies. Um, that sounds good. Also interested to see any more sort of opinions on uh, children in, in role-playing games and how you change your game. Um, we've got three children or young players in our group, my um, brother's children, so... Um, I find that visual aids and uh, handouts and things are, are helping to keep them engaged and so they're enjoying it. But um, yeah, keep up the good work and uh, I hope to speak to you again soon. Bye. So I feel like I've definitely arrived now that I get uh, phone-ins, not only from Spike Pit, but from uh, Rocks Fall, Everyone Dies or Arved, which I think is a great name. Um, thanks a lot, Darren, for the uh, birthday wishes. And um, you know that it's a it's a, a good point you make about the visual aids. Now, like I have not used visual aids for the Swords and Wizardry white box game. Well, I haven't used miniatures and a battle grid. We're doing all the actual gameplay as theater of the mind. However. Um, the adventure I'm running for them is uh, Bill Webb's uh, 1975 Swords and Wizardry introductory module, which comes with a player's map handout. So they do have a map, and they kind of plot their course using that map. They show where they think they are and where they're trying to get to. Um, and that does actually help quite a bit. Um with say like with the my little pony game they do have those little physical tokens um that they get as friendship tokens and they they have the physical act of handing them back when they need to try to re-roll something because they failed a certain roll but it's vital that they actually succeed and even that little thing you know that can be quite a help um there's a similar thing with kids on bikes you have um failure token or they're called adversity tokens in the game so every time you fail a roll you get one and by handing it back on a subsequent roll you can add a plus one to that which sometimes can mean either the difference between failure and success or the difference between a really 
drastic failure because there's degrees of failure in kids on bikes where if you fail by a certain amount, the, the more you fail by, the worse the consequences are. So it can be advantageous to add a few plus ones, even if it won't turn into a success, it might stop it from being too catastrophic. So little things like that um, are, are usually pretty welcome for kids. Although I guess the, uh, the classic, uh, um, object is just the dice themselves you know um i recently got these translucent rainbow dice for my kids they each have a set um they're beautiful dice um really i'm I'm actually kind of envious of them um but i get to see them because they they use them whenever we play these games um handouts i think are just cool whether you're playing with grown-ups or kids um just something like one of the things I do with the Curse of Strahd game is I print out all the all the letters they find, like the letter from the Burgomaster or Strahd's invitation or the Tome of Strahd excerpt, the excerpt from um, um, Argenvost's diary. Basically, every time they come up with something, I, I give them the handout. It's just a little fun extra thing. And that is a game I play with kids, so they really they they really like that. They also have their own little map. Although, so they have they have their map. It's in black and white. It looks old. It's unmarked. The thing is that Curse of Strahd also comes with a pull-out poster-sized map. The problem with that is that map is keyed. It has numbers and a list of the adventure locations. So. It's not completely full of spoilers, but it's close enough. They're like, for instance, they know they're looking for a wizard's tower, and there is a thing marked on there that's a wizard's tower. And one of the one of the drawbacks of the Curse of Strahd map is that it doesn't have a player poster map. Like the DM doesn't need a poster map, you know. Um, you're not going to be looking at a poster map behind the DM screen when you have a a poster sized handout in the back of your module that's something that the players should be able to look at and it should be able they should be able to look at it without spoiling any part of the adventure but it hasn't derailed things too much it hasn't like caused too many problems i mean it doesn't it doesn't tell them what is in these places it just tells them that these places are there and that they have a name and sometimes that name is misleading so it's fine it's a beautiful map though really well done um tomb of annihilation is better because Tomb of Annihilation has a double-sided poster map and the player side just has a bunch of blank hexes. And when I, you know, we haven't run Tomb of Annihilation in a long time because um, it's been supplanted by the, the white box game. But my daughter was having a great time, you know, plotting her course, telling me what hex she thinks she's in and she doesn't know if she's lost and stuff. And she's supposed to be mapping it as she goes along. That's the, that's the conceit I'm using for Tomb of Annihilation. We haven't got into the death curse yet. The The conceit is she's she's been hired to fill in the blanks. They know what the coastal regions look like, but they have no idea what the interior of the continent looks like. And they suspect it's full of important civilizations and relics and, you know, um, natural resources like dyes or possibly mines and things like that. So she's been sent in to map it so that it can be used for commercial purposes. Um, so she's 
trying to plot her course, you know, along all these blank hexes and describe them, like learn, like learn what's in them as she goes along. And that's great because now she's got this big colorful poster map that she can look at and use. And it gives her absolutely no information that she shouldn't have. And on the back is the full, the filled out one that's all keyed that a DM could use. Although again, you don't use it as a DM. You have, there's a, there's a, a, a smaller one in the module itself. And that's the one that I use because I need something I can look at behind the screen that the players won't see me looking at. Um, but yeah, any kind of handouts like that, I guess if you could make up handouts, I know some people like they do these like coins and things like that. Um, and other sort of objects that you can hand out at periodic places. Kids do like that stuff, but then so do grownups. Um, I do find that for my full group that I run with kids, you know, we use the grid and the minis and everything like that. I don't know. I haven't, tr- I haven't suggested not doing it, but I feel like they might be addicted to it. Um, although my daughter's adjusted well to not doing it with the old school D and D. And if we ever switched entirely to old school D and D, who's to say that I wouldn't start using minis in a battle grid. Cause I mean, there's no, nobody says I can't. Um, it's just that one of the things that I, when I run old school D and one of the one of my goals is to get away from that kind of high production value and just get back into using your imagination and less prep. You know, I, for a while, I was spending a lot of time going through eBay looking for minis that I could use if I needed a certain encounter. And when I first started playing this game, we used to use chess pieces for for minis. So all the pawns were random bad guys, you know, I, I would, uh, have my daughter pick out one piece to represent her and other good guy party members or NPCs. And then, um, pawns of the opposite color would be the bad guys. And that's what, in fact, early on, we also used a chest, a chess board as our tactical map. And then I got one of the chess X ones that you can draw shapes on. And even that's gone that's gone way out of hand. I've got these dry erase dungeon tiles that you can put together like a jigsaw piece. I use those quite a lot. I've got um I've got a few pre-printed battle mats. I've got the uh double-sided tomb of annihilation battle mat that has like one looks like dungeon floor tiles and one looks like wilderness things. Um and probably worst of all is I have I have a lot of Fat Dragon Games papercraft um, files, and papercraft is about the only craft I can do, and I, even that I'm not that great at it. But I wanted a little bit, especially like I feel like when they finally do Castle Ravenloft, I would like some kind of spectacle. So that's kind of why I started collecting those things because, you know, a lot of people use things like the um, Dwarven Forge dungeon tiles. Those things are so, so expensive. Like for the amount of money I've spent on the papercraft files and just the files, I'm not talking about the card and the ink because that's another expense um, to, to actually print them out. But just on the files themselves, I could barely get one really basic set of Dwarven Forge unpainted tiles for what I've spent on Fat Dragon Games. You know, it's just a much cheaper option. And, you know, 
it still will it'll, it will look like it's made of card because it is although to be honest the coloring on them is really good actually um i think it's a, it is a really good option if you are looking for that and you don't want to spend the fat dragon games the other tile option i know like hearst arts do these molds and you can buy these molds and then get some like dental cement or other um other types of cement or plaster and put them in the molds and then paint them but i'm terrible at painting minis i have some unpainted minis and i do occasionally have a go at painting them and they are awful so i don't want unpainted dungeon tiles because they're not going to look they're not going to look good um which is another good thing about the fat dragon games papercraft stuff is that um they do such a good job with the uh the design of them that when you print them out they look really good they, they have layers so um some of them you can change what season you can put snow or autumn leaves on the ground or something like that or moss there's a uh, there's some city tiles where you can make the city look more or less dilapidated depending on you know what you want from it so i haven't successfully ruled those papercraft things out because I, I have not finished building any of them yet um, cause I'm so crap at it. Um, but at some point I do intend to roll that out for the full group, the group with my, my kids and their cousins. Um, and I assume that that will make a big splash and I'll probably talk about that. But kids do like, you know, you're probably more likely to need minis and a battle grid or something like that. Um, I think everybody likes to visualize where they are anyway. Um, there's some things I don't like, though, about battle grids and minis that I'm starting to get away from. And one of them is that is is the the five-foot squares. So, like, I'm running Theater of the Mind um, for my old-school games, for my white box games. And in the three, um, the three little brown booklets, it suggests that three players, three characters, can walk abreast down a 10-foot wide corridor. And you wouldn't do that in fifth edition rules because each person needs a five foot a five foot square of space around them. But the way the mini fits into the five foot square space on a battle grid makes it look like they take up that entire space. And for instance, two characters in melee look like they're standing toe to toe. Um there's this YouTube channel that I intermittently watch called Lindy Beige. So like L-I-N-D-Y and beige, the color. Um, I think he's called that because his main job is he is a dance instructor, particularly of like the Lindy Hop and other dances of that era. He's also an avid LARPer and historical battle reenactor. And he did an episode once where he was complaining about, um, he called them back attacks, although in 5th edition what they would be called as attacks of opportunity. It's basically the idea that you're in melee with a with a, a bad guy. It's not going the way you want, so you'd like to get out of there. You turn your tail and run. Well, if you do that in 5th edition, the bad guy gets a free attack against you as you run away as a reaction. Doesn't even have to wait for his turn. That's called an attack of opportunity. He was basically saying that that's complete BS. And he he pointed out that if you are fighting somebody, say with a sword, 
you're not standing toe-to-toe with them. What you are is you're standing just out of sword reach of them and, and vice versa. Your opponent is standing just out of sword reach of you. And to make an attack, you lunge forward. And then if your attack misses, you instantly draw back again out of reach, out of range. Because you're not going to stand right next to each other and just keep hacking away at each other. You're trying to, you're both trying to avoid being injured. Given that, you're not really, you're not standing toe-to-toe. In fact, you probably have at least five feet of space between you, possibly even more. So if at any point one of the combatants decides to run away, by the time they've ter- like stepped backwards and started running away, they were, first of all, they weren't within reach anyway, because you're only within reach of your opponent when you lunge in to make an attack. Therefore, they're, you're already out of reach, By the time you've turned around and started running backwards, you're even further out of reach. So they can pursue you, but there's no way they're they're not going to be able to just reach out their sword or claw if it's a monster and get you. So you shouldn't get an attack of opportunity. And if the monster still wants to fight you, they're going to have to chase you. And then you're going to run a chase scenario, but that's not an attack of opportunity. Now, I think he's absolutely right. I am 100% convinced by his video, um, which isn't to say that I ignore attacks of opportunity in 5e, because I do not believe that the purpose of a fantasy role-playing game is to be 100% realistic with its combat rules. That's the province of historical miniature war games. That's what their complex rule sets are for, is to mimic realistic combat. As long as we're pretending to be elves and dwarves with magical powers, we can ease up a little bit on the realism. And at the end of the day, the attack of opportunity system in 5e works. It it applies equally to monsters and PCs. It's easy to understand, much easier than like the 3.5 and Pathfinder versions of it. So there's no reason to change it. On the other hand, if you did want to change it, it would be easy to just ditch it because, again, it applies equally to monsters and PCs. So you're just going to say, there's no longer any such thing as an attack of opportunity. Nobody ever gets one. And then I guess there'd be no reason to have the disengage action, um, which is only exists to give people a possibility of leaving melee combat without taking an attack of opportunity if they really need to start running away. Um, But that's another thing that I don't like about miniatures and battle grids in 5e is that they do give that opportunity, they do give that appearance that you're standing toe to toe with a monster. When if you actually saw it in real life, I mean, to the, you know, obviously it's not real life, but if you were kind of acting it out in person, you would not be toe-to-toe with your opponent. Um, so for instance, when I run white box, um, I take a, I take something from Chainmail, the predecessor of D&D, which is that any melee attack immediately provokes a returning attack from the target if the target is still alive. That's something that's detailed in Chainmail, and I liked it. And it fits in with that when you make an attack roll, you have to lunge forward in order to get within your weapon's range. And when you do that, you are de facto making yourself vulnerable to a returning attack. In fact, it's the only time that you're vulnerable to a returning attack. 
So that I use a returning attack in place of an attack of opportunity when I'm running white box. Um, so you make a you make a melee attack, and if your opponent is still alive, they get to make one melee attack against you, even though it's your turn. Similarly, on their turn, if they make a melee attack against you and you survive it, you get a free melee attack against them as a returning attack. But what you what you don't get is an attack of opportunity. So you can run away from combat at any time with no adverse consequences. So if at any time you decide, hey, if I take one more hit, I'm dead, I'll just turn tail and run. You can do that for free. And that gels in with, first of all, it, you know, I didn't make it up. It, cam- it comes from Chainmail, but it gels with the point that Lindy Bage was making. And it really works for running theater of the mind where you don't have pieces on a board that look like they're standing toe-to-toe when in real life they wouldn't be. Because your mini fills up nearly that whole one-inch square on a tactical battle mat, and that's representing five feet of space. But we're not five feet wide, so there's no way we would be that close to the monsters. But yeah, um, kids do like the minis. And they like... they they. For dungeon crawling especially, kids like drawing out the rooms. And it it can also make it really easy if they want to explore a certain part of the room. They can put their mini where they... I'm looking at this wall, and they can put their mini there. Um, But it does does definitely hold their attention a little bit better. Um, I wonder if maybe I should bring the battle mat in, because my son has been having a little trouble concentrating on the white box game recently, and partly that's because of starting school, and he has a lot on his mind, and he's a lot more tired in the afternoons from having a full day at school. But I wonder if that would actually increase his, com- com- uh, increase his concentration. I may actually try that the next time we run white box to actually uh, get out the battle mat and say, okay, this is what, this is what, this is what you see. Here's a mini that represents you. Anyways, that was uh, some odd digressions, and I talked a lot more than I intended to. However, um, with minis and a battle mat in particular, I don't feel like that's kind of a concession to younger players, um, even though kids do particularly enjoy it. Um, Because quite a lot of players, um, even older players, have kind of come to expect it. It's probably more of a modern thing than an OSR thing, because I think the complexity of like 3.5 and Pathfinder, you know, start to really demand the, you know, minis in a tactical battle grid, because if you're going to, for instance, flank to get certain advantages, then you have to prove that you're flanking by using your movement and, you know, positioning yourself and demonstrating on the board that you've positioned yourself in a flanking position and things. And I know we don't like to talk about fourth edition, but the way 4th edition was written assumes you're using a grid. They stopped giving ranges in distances and only in squares. So, you know, a, a certain spell's area of effect would be, you know, close burst 2 or close burst 1 or, or you know, something like that. And they're talking one square around you, you know. Um, so basically dropping all pretense that you're that you might not be running this on a grid and you know i don't know i mean it can be it can be useful and it can be fun although a part of me will 
always hanker for the simplicity of theater of the mind. Um, it's maybe, you know, it's maybe worth, you know, doing that, especially if you are running for younger players. And another thing I should, I, I forgot about my kids on bikes game is that, um, although there's no, you're under no obligation to map your town, especially cause my daughter basically created the town. She drew her own map of it. And every time we play, she gets that map out and she shows us where stuff is happening on the map, you know, where they're going. And, uh, and we, and we kind of talk about if that's close or far, or how long it would take to get there and stuff like that. So again, you know, I mean, just, it's still a visual aid or a handout or something like that, just because it's something she created herself doesn't make it any less a handout. And it is a really good way for her to visualize what's going on in the story. Another thing, though, that Arfed mentioned was the uh, Hobbits on Ponies. And Colin, I'm sure, if he's listening, will n- notice that he sent me three messages and I've only played two so far. Oh, well, I thought I was gone. Might as well go for the hat trick as I'm here. <laughs> um, the Shire, Kids on Bikes, glad you like that idea. I thought it was quite quirky and, uh, yeah, you you definitely got into my wavelength. I can imagine the uh, the old hobbits just trying to brush everything under the carpet and, and pretend that everything's A-OK when really in their heart of hearts perhaps they know there's something sinister going on behind the surface or maybe they are just blind to it. Um, so, I've, you know, obviously I don't know too much about kids on bikes, but I know you do. And, I, yeah, I thought you might appreciate that. Um, and... Uh, Glad you did. Anyway, I'm definitely gone now for sure. Yeah, and check this out. Hi, Robert. Frank T. here of Frank T.'s Liner Notes. Just listening to your latest episode, and I love the idea of hobbits on bikes. Uh, This idea of running a, a young hobbits adventure with your kids is a great idea. I may even try this with my own children. Um, I think it's a cool way of doing some unusual adventures. I mean, what type of mischief do you think young hobbits would get up to? I think, you know, you've got, you, you have access to all the usual kids on bikes tropes, but in a fantasy realm, you know, they could be exploring a haunted keep maybe. Um, I can't wait to see what you come up with, and I hope you let us in on that process. Yeah, well, I said uh, I said before that that idea had legs, and it clearly does. So I think after this many call-ins, I am I'm gonna have to make this happen. This is gonna have to be a thing that that we do. Um, in terms of like getting it off the ground, um, I've been thinking a lot about what I want to do for the character sheet, um, whether I want to kind of use the adventures in middle earth character sheet or the one ring character sheet and give it kids on bikes esque adventures instead of what the game would probably default assume or the more, you know, traditional adventures, but you got to think like, well, what's the real distinguishing factor of kids on bikes. And there's a couple of things. One, there is the player generated setting and we won't, we won't have that all the way because it will be in the Shire. 
On the other hand, you know, we all think we know what the Shire is like, you know, because we've read the books and stuff. But there's not like a thorough description of the Shire, you know. And also most of what we know about the Shire is Hobbiton with maybe some other information about like Buckland where Frodo um, spends the night before he goes off on his journey and where he takes that house. Um, there are other parts of the Shire that may have very different characteristics. Um, so I, th I think there are, are enough blank spaces that the kids could generate some ideas, you know, not only of the people who live there, but of the places. Like, is every hobbit hole inhabited? Are there any abandoned ones? Are there any ones that are rumored to be haunted? You know, and think about this, like, the we know that Bilbo was keeping his mithril coat in the Mitchell Delving Matham house until he, you know, collected it in advance of um, you know, retiring to Rivendell. What else is in there, do you think? I mean, it's meant to be a bunch of stuff that the hobbits don't want to throw away, but they don't have any particular use for. But basically, if a, a quote a, a coat of mithril or a shirt of mithril mail was in there. Who knows what else? What other weird heirlooms from a bygone era could be there? So there's, there's, you know, options for that. Um, another thing that because I'm now reading Lord of the Rings to my daughter, and we just got to the Ents and 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 uh, Treebeard's story about the Entwives, and he, you know, he asks whether the Entwives had been seen anywhere near the Shire because the Shire is the kind of place they would like. And, you know, I've always kind of taken the implication to be that Sauron killed all the Antwives and they are no more. But that's a pretty dark assumption. Like, what if the Antwives are hanging around the Shire? That could be an adventure that they could discover the Antwives. And since my kids wouldn't be playing hobbits who necessarily know Bilbo or Frodo or Sam or Mary or Pippin, and especially Mary and Pippin. There's no reason to assume that any information my kids' characters get would affect the main plot of Lord of the Rings. So it could be that my kids play characters who find the Antwives as one of the adventures they go on. And that information never actually makes it to Merry and Pippin. Therefore, Merry and Pippin are none the wiser when Treebeard asks them about the Antwives. And then that also creates the possibility that after the War of the Ring is over, at some later date, the Ents could someday find the Antwives again if it happens to come to their attention that the Antwives are, in fact, living somewhere near the Shire. Um, that's one sort of adventure or possible adventure I was thinking. Um, but yeah, in terms of the character sheet, I think the other thing is is the simplicity of the stat rules and stuff like that. Um, and the ease of creating a bespoke character rather than necessarily following a trope. Um, so I think I'll, I'll take as a starting point, I'll take the ordinary kids on bikes character sheet, and then I'll look at some of the flavor information, background information and stuff like that, um, in the official and in, in adventures in middle earth and, uh, see how we can augment the kids on bikes character sheet with a, a little bit of middle earth flavor. 
And then, um, yeah, I'll also need to think about what they're actually going to ride. I mean, they don't need to ride anything. And I was talking to my daughter about this and she's like, you know, yeah, you know, hobbits don't have bikes. And it's like, you don't even need anything. You know, you don't have to have bikes, even in kids on bikes. And she's like, but we have bikes. And it's like, I know you have bikes. You choose to have bikes, but it says in the rule set, you don't absolutely have to be riding bikes all the time. It's just a nice evocative image for the title. She's like, we like bikes. And I'm like, that's great. You can have bikes. I'm happy that you have the bikes, but you don't need to have bikes or anything. You know, maybe you're just on foot. Um, I guess they have, you know, yeah, pony drawn carriages and stuff as well. Um, we'll, we'll figure that out. That's really more of a, you know, well, they will need to have some transportation probably. Um, but then I imagine during summer, Hobbit children are probably allowed to run room far and wide because the Shire is usually thought of as such a safe place that if they, you know, if they go wandering um, quite far into some nearby meadows or stuff like that or to the next village or something like that, probably nobody thinks anything of it. Anyways, we will definitely have to get that off the ground because I think um, it's a good idea and it's obviously struck a chord with a number of people. And I've never done a mashup before, so this will be exciting, you know. Hey, Robert. Uh, Josh Beckelheimer here. And I just listened to the uh, Tower of Skulls episode, and I am very, very honored that you uh, chose my very first one-page adventure to be used for your Swords and Wizardry game. Um, I'm glad to see that it was a success when you tested it out with your kid, and I'm really glad that it creeped her out. I think my job is done. I think I'm done writing One Page Adventures now, which, funny, that was my first one. I did my job, creeping out kids. So I'm pleased, and now I can just retire. But uh, no, really, I, I love what you did with the adventure and taking it and making it, making it your own, and that's the whole point of it. And I'm glad to hear all the stuff that you've done and I'm curious how it goes with the adults. Thanks for that, Josh. And um, thank you for writing the adventures. Um, and I, I basically, I have, I think I have all of them now. Um, I had actually acquired, you know, a few of them by, uh, through uh, Josh's website and through um, uh, RPG Now and, and stuff. Uh, but also I recently uh, received as a, as a gift, uh, basically like an omnibus of, uh, of his adventures, um, including converted to like tunnels and trolls and stuff. So if I ever want to run in that system, I've got some stuff and uh, there's a list of like NPCs. Um, <clears throat> one of them particularly struck my fancy. Um, let me actually pull that up right now because I'm actually looking at the PDF but there is yeah Boggs the spider breeder that's a good that's a good NPC but the one the one that caught my yeah Froth the cartographer so Froth is a male rattling so basically in the in this omnibus of, of Josh Beckelheimer's uh, adventures and game material 
Um, there's a list of NPCs that he's kind of designed, and uh, one of them is Froth, who's a male ratling and a cartographer. And because he's a ratling, you know, he, uh, he can communicate with rats, and he has been making a, a map of Rap and Athuk, which is what really caught my attention on this one. Um, it's apparently not a perfect map. He has pieces um, here and there, various locations within Rap and Athic, but would pay a great deal of money for information that could finish his work because his rats and other contacts rarely return with enough information. So um, basically, I'm always, I'm always trying to get people to go to Rap and Athic. I'm obsessed with this mega dungeon. And if you haven't read it, you need to get a copy of it. I actually have two versions. No, I have three versions. I have the first three ones published for, I guess, third edition. Um, so it's the first three publications of them ever. Um, I have the Swords and Wizardry one, not the expanded, not the expansions from 2014, but the 2012 Swords and Wizardry version and the 5e version, which I backed um, as a Kickstarter. You know, come hell or high water, I'm running that adventure, and I'm always on the lookout for ways to seed it. Um, and I was thinking that I need to use Froth. I need to put him somewhere where where he can talk about rap, mapping rap and Athuk. So it's just another way to get people to try to go there. And, you know, a potential, like, if they go there, map a section of it and come back alive, it's another potential revenue source for them because froth will pay pay them for their information um yeah but the uh the reason so i've already talked this episode about why i like the one page adventures and i've talked about lore and i think i'll do a later episode someday about lore in general um but yeah, because because the one-page adventures are frameworks, basically no two groups are going to have exactly the same adventure. And that should really be true of any adventure. But I feel like this one-page adventure approach is is really aware of that and really enables that. It's like, okay, you know, the... Uh, yeah, here's the here's the framework, here's the concept, and here's a couple of the the tools and ingredients that you'll need. And the rest of that is totally up to you. And if you take like another the the second one actually so uh tower of skulls is the first one and the second one that he published was the tomb of the knights of zelu and this is like what i think another great example of white space that you can fill in as the game as the game master so the the setting is a tomb you know you're going to be it's a dungeon crawl a tomb of four to seven rooms it's the resting place of the five knights of Zelu. Over 100 years ago, the knights of Zelu were the guardians of light. They dedicated their lives to destroying the forces of darkness. In their final attempt to snuff out the darkness, they lost their lives and were placed in this tomb. Now, uh, today these knights have been forgotten, and a bugbear is trying to perform a dark ritual with his lackey goblins and a goblin shaman. So that's what your PCs are walking into. Notice he doesn't say what the knights were specifically doing to snuff out darkness were they doing a ritual did it go wrong how exactly did it go wrong you know there's a lot of details there that you can supply you know i instantly started thinking of um 
I say the mouth of doom. There's a level. There's a level of Rappanathic in the mouth of doom. I think where where it was a hospital, and these uh, clerics were trying to destroy all disease by summoning Pazuzu, a demon of disease, and then I guess holding him captive, and then that would stop all diseases being able because because they would have control over Pazuzu, and then therefore would able would be able to. Um, uh, stop all disease but it went wrong and pazuzu escaped and went, ran rampant and now the place is a you know hothouse of disease and things are even worse is something like that what happened were they were they going to summon a shadow or dark demon and try to control it in order to snuff out the darkness and it went wrong because when you get to the final encounter the leader of the Knights of Zelu has become a shadow. So, you know, you get to you get to take these little snippets of information and you know, draw make the connections yourself. Um also, it doesn't say for sure whether the bugbear and his goblin lackeys and a shaman whether they're performing a ritual that has anything to do with the Knights of Zelu. Are they trying to raise the shadow? that that was the former leader of the Knights of Zelu and control it themselves? Or are they doing something completely different and they don't realize the history of this tomb? Did they maybe just sense that there's some evil presence here and it might mean appropriate place for whatever they're doing? Do they work for somebody else? You know, are they connected or is it a coincidence? These are other things that you get to decide yourself. And these one-page adventures work really well for somebody who is willing and able, you know, like interested in filling in those blanks, you know, and that is exactly where my mind goes when I'm reading adventures, you know, um, like I said, I'm happy to have the stats and the monster ideas and things like that, but I don't need the story. I can come up with my own story and these things give me exactly what I need. And I feel like, you know, it's the way forward. It's maybe what we should all be doing, you know, and I guess like some people will feel the opposite. Some people will not want to always make up their own story and their own lore and everything. And they'll just want somebody else to, you know, give them a good story and and they'll run it. Just like some people are great at maps and they don't need somebody to draw their maps. You know, even if it's a good map, they're like, well, I would rather draw the map this way. You know, I can't, I can't draw maps. So I need somebody else to do them for me. I can't make monster stat blocks, so I need somebody else to do them for me. But yeah, I don't need, you know, NPC names and history and timelines and stuff like that. So anyways, these have been a revelation, and I basically have them all. So there is a lot of stuff that I, there's a lot of adventures I can run based on these. And they all have some kind of unique monster and some kind of unique magic item the one for the knights of zelu is is a sword it's a plus one sword and a, pl- a plus three against shadows so very useful right but whenever you kill a humanoid with this shadow or with this blade is if you do the killing blow with this blade their body instantly decays and returns to life as a shadow the following day so as you go around using the sword, you're creating more shadows, which is probably a bad thing. And you might not realize it 
right away because they don't become a shadow until the following day. So how many shadows are you going to create? If you're, if you, one of the PCs takes this sword, how many shadows are they going to create before they realize that they're creating a whole wake, like a whole host of shadows in their wake? And once, once they do realize that, are they going to give up the sword? Now they have a moral decision to make. It's not it's not like this is a cursed item. It doesn't say that it's, you know, one of these evil cursed items that now you can't ever put down or give up until you get a removed curse. I guess you could run it that way, but I would just rather give them a choice. Are you going to keep this powerful weapon even though it's putting more evil in the world or are you going to give it up, you know? These things like that, you know, there's so much potential in these. It's there's so much in such a small space. Um, it's just it's just really amazing work. The other thing I was really I was really tempted to because um, one of these is is uh, one of these adventures is the siege of Krasmere. So you you get the the PCs to a town, and while that town that town is is, is uh, attacked and besieged you know, by some uh, orcs and goblins with an ogre. So uh, I was really tempted to actually start with that, although I, I eventually opted for the Tower of Skulls because I thought a traditional dungeon crawl, you know, is is a is probably the place I wanted to start. But um, I will be seeding the, the town of Krasmere. It will be nearby, and if they go there, then that would be a good opportunity to run this adventure. Just because it's a good little town. It actually is mapped, so they can have their own player's map of it. And uh, there's instructions for how to run the siege. And um, I think that would be a really fun and different type of uh, type of encounter. Or, you know, type of adventure. So... Um, this is just, you know, it's just, it's great work and I'm really excited and I hope I do it justice. Um, and I had a lot of fun kind of supplying details and making it my own and stuff. Um, anyways, I've rambled long enough for Tuesday. Um, so I'm going to be signing off now. Um, until next time, play well and let the dice fall where they may. Especially if you're playing in my uh, game tomorrow.